welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by The Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each month we'll be bringing you the latest news from The Beaver Trust as we start to welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we'll also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. This month, we're chatting about eco-anxiety, and we're joined by psychiatrist Dr. Katrina Meller. So, hello, hello from Lockdown 3, Eva. Can you hear me? Are you okay? Hello, receiving loud and clear. (laughs) Hi, Sophie. Yes, we're back recording under tight restrictions from the safety and chaos of our own homes. Well, we are indeed. However, we do have some shiny new microphones, though, so we should hopefully sound nice and silky smooth for our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of lockdown, it's really raised the profile of mental health and anxiety. More people are talking about it, but for some, it might be adding to an existing anxiety that is on the rise. This episode, we're going to be talking about climate or eco-anxiety. Mm. So have you heard of eco-anxiety before, Sophie? Um, I have, yeah. It's one of those terms that have been sort of bashed about on social media quite a lot, and you see it in the papers and things, and it seems to be sort of attached to all sorts of different communications about the climate, and um, it's a real interesting one. And I think I've, I, I've never really felt it myself, however... And actually, I must say that I've sometimes felt bad for not feeling it. You know, as someone who's interested in conservation and the health of the environment, sometimes I feel like I ought to feel more worried about it. But I have to say that the first time I I really felt anxious about it, you know, and I could physically feel it in my body at times, was um, seeing uh, the project of HS2, so High Speed Rail 2, unfolding. And I think that was the first time when I really felt that that was something that shouldn't be happening Um, and I read the science around it and I read the reasons why it should not go ahead and yet it is and so having that sort of loss of control of seeing a very sort of frightening and large-scale thing unfold that's hurting our planet um, was really quite scary. Mm. How about you? What does does eco-anxiety bring up for you? Oh, so much. I feel it a lot. I feel really, really the, the loss, the grief, the sadness, the frustration, the anger, all sorts of really big um, emotions and mm. uh, anxieties about the destruction of our life support system, basically. But of course, it's not just about me. You know, Greta has said it to us plain and simple in her wonderful quote um, about adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. Mm. I am panicking personally. I don't know about you, and I'm pretty sure that others are elsewhere. And how do we cope with that? Um, I'm really looking forward to exploring that this episode. Yeah, no, definitely. It's a really powerful, powerful thing from Greta there. But enough of that for now, because I think let's bring in um, a little bit of light before we go into talking a bit more about eco-anxiety. So Eva, are you ready for me to beat you once again in our monthly fact off? Yes, that sound can only mean one thing. It's time for the battle of the beaver facts. And I wouldn't be so confident if I were you. I've got a good one. I've got a good one lined up. Have you indeed? Well, we shall see. So I'm going to go first, if that's okay. And I'm going to talk about beavers and their lips. So I don't know if you're aware that beavers, in fact, have lips, just like us. And these lips, amazingly, can actually shut behind their teeth. 
And because of this, it means that the beavers can continue to feed under the water and keep splinters out of their mouth at the same time. Now, I don't know if you ever tried it yourself, but actually, <laughs> it's actually quite difficult to do that. It's quite a skill. So, listeners, if I could get you a visual <laughs> of this, it would be worth a lot of money right now. It's impossible to do. I have massive respect. So, there we go. Beavers' lips can shut <laughs> behind their teeth. And um, perhaps try it for yourself, but don't chew any wood while you're doing it. <laughs> That is a cool fact. They're such cool creatures. Um, I'm going to uh, rebuff that one with a lovely, well-researched fact direct from the semi-beaver human Christopher Jones. Um, (laughs) I wonder what you were going to say there. (laughs) And it is about beavers under fur. It's really interesting. So it's quite dense and it's very soft, Mm. but it's got tiny hooks on the follicles so that it all links together and makes this effectively like a waterproof layer trapping air against the beaver's skin. And that makes beaver fur the best ever material to make um, felt with, you know, hats Mm. and soft, light and waterproof material, which is probably why they were so extensively hunted um, for this material. But it's, it's, you can imagine, it's all coast. Cozy and toasty underneath. Cozy and toasty, but of course we don't want to. Um, we we don't need to use that anymore, do we? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, don't do this. Don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. So there we go. There are our facts. Of course, you can vote for which one you think is the best on our social media and use the hashtag uh, Fact Off. And we're also going to be asking Dr. Katrina which fact she thinks is her favourite. So um, we certainly are. So that's lips or under fur. <laughs> the choice is yours. Keywords are key. <laughs> Okay, so let's get on with the episode, shall we? I mean, perhaps we might start with defining what exactly eco-anxiety is, because as we said earlier, it's one of these words that we're hearing more and more, but it's difficult to understand what exactly it means for us and our mental health. So a vague definition of eco-anxiety describes a heightened state of stress or worry brought on by fears around the current and the predicted environmental damage and climate change. Yes, and an absolutely crucial point we want to share and that we'll go into later is that this isn't a psychiatric or medical disorder, but it's a normal, sane response to what's going on around us. We know that if we harm nature, we're harming ourselves. And that can feel very, you can feel really powerless to do anything about Mm. it when you see things like HS2 going on or you learn more about climate change because it's going to affect everyone and it can be really frightening. Mm, definitely definitely and Eva I know that um, eco-anxiety and and the health of the planet and the state of nature is something that's really important to you I mean what does what's going through your mind when you're worried about the environment what specifically might you know sort of trigger one of these um, sort of anxious feelings yeah I feel it just talking about climate breakdown particularly when it interestingly when it involves death and destruction of other animals the koalas Mm. and the Aussie bushfires last year the drying up of Victoria Falls, the impacts on million, millions of creatures that rely on that fresh water. Even watching an episode of Perfect Planet on the bee, yeah. you know, the beauty we're shown there, I just instantly mm. go to, oh my God, we're destroying this at the, such an amazing rate. It makes me, the pain of that grief at losing these, this beautiful thing and that it's our doing. It, oh God, you know, sometimes you have to go off for a good climate cry. Um, let it all out best done in nature I can recommend yeah Um, yeah very apt (laughs) but it's you know it's a real thing and there are some people who I really struggle to talk to about it Mm. and there are others who really instantly get it and it's a really lovely Mm. um, 
uh, you know, empathetic moment and you can bonding moment. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the one of those things that, um, you know, if you're not careful, it can be quite isolating. And we're going to be speaking to Dr. Katrina Mella shortly about the wider problems that are posed by eco-anxiety. And importantly, she might offer some tips and tricks of how to manage it. But first, we are Beaver Trust, lest we forget. We are. And why on earth are Beaver Trust talking about eco-anxiety? What has it got to do with the second largest rodent in the world? <laughs> well, firstly, because it affects everyone. Um, <laughs> so we are in a new lockdown and we're hearing chatter everywhere about nature being important for our mental health, especially at this time. But coronavirus and society's emotional response to lockdown will be dwarfed by the potential of the emotional response from climate breakdown at different times, mm. depending on where, which, you know, where you live in the world. Um, but I've had COVID anxiety described as the outpouring of pent-up emotions to ongoing mm. climate impacts, as if lockdown has offered this reason to show our fear because it's immediate, but climate, um, by comparison, is ongoing and it's worsening, but we're sort of, we're the boiling frogs, if you like. <laughs> and, and COVID has been this opportunity to pour out this grief and this anxiety um, yeah. about what, our connection to nature. Image. And, you know, and, and beavers fit into that conversation, don't they? Oh, totally. And, you know, beavers fit in in many ways because they can play an important role in alleviating anxiety within ourselves um, and alleviating the concern about the, the roots of eco-anxiety. So we know that beavers create these amazing wetlands with rich, biodiverse, dynamic ecosystems, which allow us to enjoy nature and connect with it on quite a personal level. And also beavers, as we know, again, perform all sorts of ecosystem services, whether it's mitigating against the effects of flat, uh, flout, <laughs> drought, <laughs> a new kind of weather system everybody <laughs> flout is something we should really worry about these days <laughs> the beavers can help mitigate against drought and flooding which can help nature withstand future events and make it more resilient and i think that sort of reassurance that beavers provide can help us feel a bit better about it too and you know we mustn't forget how powerful the you know image and reality of a very uh, charismatic attractive cute cuddly looking mammal can be and it's I know that I can probably speak for you either it's been an enormously positive distraction having a very wonderful mammal to keep us busy and and sort of occupied over the last year while everything's been going on so there's enormous power there in terms of animals being a wonderful source of solace yeah us when we're it, feeling a bit rubbish exactly there's this nature connectedness but also one of the best ways we can cope with climate anxiety is to be taking action. And so nature restoration Indeed. is one of those actions. And again, we've said it before, but it doesn't come better than beaver restoration. It does not, no. And, um, you know, people are hurting at the moment. We've had a bit of a rubbish few months, um, a bit of a rubbish few months that are probably coming up as well. Um and I think, you know, this is a great time for us to start thinking about introducing our guest, Katrina. So, yes, we're delighted to be joined by a friend who has both professional and personal experience in this area. Dr. Katrina Meller, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist working in the NHS and also with the Royal College of Psychiatrists in their work of responding to the climate crisis. Katrina, so great to have you here. I'm thrilled on behalf of our listeners um, to have your expertise and as well as to have the chance to learn more myself about this really important topic. 
Yeah, Katrina, it's really, really great to have you here. And first of all, of course, we ask all of our guests who come here on the Lodgecast to help settle the all-important beaver fact off. So please tell us, which beaver fact did you prefer? Was it the fact about the lips or the fact about their fur? <laughs> what do you think? Um, um, so I think it's a tough one. I'm sure you get this with your guests every week or every month. Um, I think it's going to have to be... The fur. Ah, yes. she did it. Back on she did it. I haven't won for ages. <laughs> <laughs> you just saved I do me. love the I'll lips and you. teeth. I do love the lips and teeth. Mm. But there's something about the hooks, the little hooks and the mm. I know. The barbs. I agree. Evolution and nature. Well done. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> amazing. Thank you for that. Hats um. off. Thank ah, you. Nicely done, Sophie. A bit oh, of pill. <laughs> Um, So let's get down to it. So there are various phrases associated with the subject, but really what is eco-anxiety? Could you um, explain to us some of the terms that you hear associated with the emotions experienced in response to climate change and environmental damage? Yes, certainly. Um, And sometimes people ask that question um, expecting a short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm not sure I've... um, I've got to the point where I can give a short answer, but maybe if I just set the slightly wider context first. So um, if we're thinking about the emotional response to the climate crisis, eco-anxiety is a significant one. And we will be talking about that today. But I think it's important to sort of say there are other ways that the climate and nature crisis impacts on human mental health. And I think it shows just how closely it's another way of showing just how closely our health is linked to our planet's Mm. health. And for simplicity, we tend to um, split the impacts into three main areas. So the direct impacts on mental health, the indirect effects, and then um, this area that we're calling eco-anxiety. So, for example, getting caught up in extreme weather events like flooding Mm. can directly cause increased levels of, um, for example, anxiety, depression or PTSD in people in those communities. Right. There can be indirect effects which are more like sort of knock-on effects in the longer term for example prolonged droughts could impact economies and food availability which increases stress Mm. and hardship and then we're also seeing this eco-anxiety which is also like I say a significant issue And, and that's kind of how people are coming to terms with the climate crisis or the nature crisis um even if they haven't experienced any of these catastrophes directly And so I think we start to see what eco-anxiety is if we try to answer the question, what does it feel like when we hear bad news about our planet Um, and importantly, accept the implications of that bad news? Um, So what does it feel like to be living through the destruction of our wider home, Mm. the earth? What does it feel like to be seeing the damage being done to other people and other species across the earth? Um, And what does it feel like to have our future shrouded in uncertainty and further loss um i already so, want to stop you there it feels horrible that's how it feels <laughs> yes, you can imagine it's a it's a big yeah, <laughs> it's horrible. Awful. yeah. yeah okay <laughs> yeah yeah and and i suppose when i was thinking about talking to you about this i, I just wanted to make 
a really important point starting off. So I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist and I'm talking about this, but it doesn't mean that this is a mental illness or or a mental disorder. Mm. I think it's really important to keep focused on the fact that the problem or the disorder here is the nature and climate crisis Mm. and it's Mm. not people's emotional response to it. And in fact, I think it's important to tell ourselves that it's healthy to be frightened in a crisis. And Hmm. if you're experiencing eco-distress, it shows that you understand what's going on and you care about what's going on. And one of the challenges is that it's it's such a slow moving, apparently slow moving crisis compared to our day to day lives, that sometimes it catches you unawares, doesn't it? That feeling of um, fear and panic almost momentary yeah. thing yeah. and then you go back to your day to day and you, no one else around you is feeling it and you, it's really hard to relate the two things yeah Katrina I'm particularly interested in how you describe eco-anxiety or eco-distress as something that is actually a very healthy and natural response yeah. because I'm not sure I've ever actually heard it interpreted in that way before mm-hmm. it's kind of I think with media and comms and society has kind of associated it with negativity in a way and something mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is that is harmful um I mean you must see all sorts in your work in the psychiatric profession but I'm particularly interested in how it's perhaps affecting the younger members of our society um, and children and say young mm-hmm. teens and adolescents what are, what are the things that the general public are sort of not seeing uh, behind the scenes? How is it manifested in our society? I mean, yeah, just to pick up on your first point, I think, you know, I'm not meaning to say this is a good thing and minimising the distress that people are, are feeling, but I, I think it's just that idea that strong emotions can teach us something. If we don't mm. avoid them or, or minimise them, they can show us what we care about and they can they can fuel a kind of stronger sense of um, motivation. And actually they can enable people to do stuff that they didn't think they were able to do before. If you feel like you really care, um, you might sign up for a podcast that you don't feel particularly comfortable <laughs> recording or uh, other things that you you know you, you you feel this larger amount of energy and, and confidence than than maybe you would otherwise. And I think it's telling us something really important as a as a species, isn't it? I kind of see this as as um the next uh, warning to us. We've had the kind of species extinction and rising sea levels and extreme mm-hmm. weather events. and i do I do wonder if actually people connecting to this pain and sharing it and being witnessed will be something that will stimulate more action. Mm. And you also asked about how is it manifesting? How's in it manifested in our society? Yeah, what does it sort of what what does the picture look like from your perspective? I'm speaking more from the perspective at this point of a parent, someone mm. who's working with other psychologists, psychotherapists, teachers, uh, young people. So it's not necessarily something that's presenting as a primary cause of severe mental health problems mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, but I think at the moment it's mainly manifesting in society th- through the stories you hear. So from from these people, so young people, teachers, parents of of what the young people they're connected with mm. are saying. Mm. So these young people are hearing the news, they're learning about it at school, which is important, and um, that 
um, in an age-appropriate way our, our children are informed. But some of the interpretations are fed back to parents or, or teachers as, you know, thinking the world's going to end yeah. in 2020 cause, or 2030 because they've picked mm. up something from the IPCC report. Or... It's very interesting, isn't it? Speaking as a fellow parent, how you talk to young children about climate and the environment mm. without it being a worrying thing because they think in such short time frames it's very immediate their life so if you tell them something's going to happen it's not it'll happen in 30 years it's going to happen quite soon and therefore they want to act on it which is very both very motivational and a good thing because they're helping mobilize the world at the moment the youth voice uh, but also probably highly distressing for them. Um, and I, my own children have sort of looked me in the eye and said, is the world, are we all going to die? And it's very hard to answer that question, <laughs> you know, without trying to undo the important knowledge and actually the truth behind it. It's it's really hard. Yeah. And and I think because of that, lots of people are, 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 are sort of working on these mm. issues, aren't they? There's lots of conversations and groups. Yeah. Is, is the NHS itself trying to respond to this collectively do you think it's because I know you're I think I think you're fairly at the cutting edge of some of the climate related stuff within the medical profession um Mm. are you finding lots of others interested in that or is there lots of work to be done both (laughs) (laughs) um and um as I'm sure you know there are many different challenges and demands on the NHS and the staff particularly at the moment but there is also despite that a lot happening on the environmental front and um, the NHS in in many ways is leading the way I think Mm, and lots of people have been patiently thinking about this for a long time these incredible people who for a decade or more have been thinking about how to cut the carbon footprint there's a lot of work about how to engage clinicians like how how do we have this conversation that the climate crisis nature crisis is, is a health crisis and therefore we have a role to play, um, as well as reducing our impact um, and how are we going to adapt services in the future. But there's yeah, there's some good concrete plans and proposals being launched. The NHS England has just launched a net zero plan, which they've put some funding and okay. manpower behind. Mm. Um, Presumably there's, a, there's a slight fear or there's a need to make sure that suddenly there isn't an increasing flood of people going to their GP saying I'm really depressed because about hmm. about the climate and so there's a need to normalize a degree of climate anxiety and maybe that will stimulate other groups to set up sort of support networks and places where you can sit with these emotions together um so that so yeah. there's reduced <laughs> yeah. pressure on the nhs effectively yeah and sort of position this out you know most of the time outside doctors and and outside medicalizing mm. it i think you mentioned that that young people you're you're seeing young people's eco-anxiety manifest in a form of guilt whether they're guilty about air travel or they feel like perhaps they shouldn't have children one day and how I certainly identify with those feelings um, very much in my mid-twenties. And these are, it seems almost unfair that these are huge decisions that we're sort of feeling guilty about and kind of, do you have any suggestions as to how we might deal with those feelings um, in a time when, you know, the environment is going to be increasingly under distress? It's not an easy answer, is it? I think, and and each one of us will will come to this awareness and feel these feelings through our own perspective. Mm. And I don't think there's an easy answer. There's certainly not a right or a wrong, I don't think. And I don't think we should um, be starting to make judgments on each other. 
I think we are all going to have different priorities and it's about having conversations with maybe with other people who are in similar situations Mm. at the same time as giving those feelings space to to be because otherwise they can become quite um, crippling. So, So some people talk about you know, whatever the feeling is, whether it's the guilt or the grief, that it's it's not like something you can think about, deal with and get over. Hmm. It's it's mm. with us, isn't it? That's um, a big challenge, isn't it? And it's, you can't deal with this to make it, it go is. away. No, and, and we kind of want to, mm. don't we? But um, the, the the problem is, is too complex for that and that's not going to happen. And so some people talk about, actually, is this more like coming to terms with a chronic illness or a terminal disease diagnosis um interesting and what can we learn from that sort of process mm. um and and actually that's that's different for everybody um but maybe there are some common themes and i i think you could probably split that into um uh looking after yourself acknowledging and accepting your emotions whatever that looks like for you and then um having done that thinking about well, what changes do I need to make and I think if you do those two things together with other people who get it and who are maybe struggling with those same sort of questions you can find a way through that is still uncomfortable um, and can feel distressing at times but it, it means you don't feel so stuck you can mm. find your way through and sometimes on the other side there is a bit more clarity um, and there's some difficult decisions to be made but there's also it, it sort of opens up a chance to see things differently and and, mm. and maybe see oh maybe my life is heading off in this direction and maybe yeah. there's some good good things about that thank That's, you yeah I, I really like how you how you mention about the importance of it's all about normalising it, isn't it? Like Eva said earlier, you know, mm. just making it mm. a conversation that is important and needs mm. to be had mm. and to, and to you know, just keep talking and yes. to be honest with yourself yeah. about it. And it suddenly seems a little less scary when you realise that other people feel the same way. Yeah, amazing. And we so we need people, don't we? We need people in our friendship groups and, you know, potentially others to help us through this but but how much do we also need nature to be part of the solution what is your personal view on nature's role in helping people with mental health problems generally you know and with eco-anxiety is one of the biggies Mm. that everyone will probably have to face at some point is it is nature currently woefully underused or is it or is it even not a practical reality for many you know urban residents I think, yeah, starting off by saying I think nature is um, a vital part of the solutions and not just to the health and well-being stuff, but on many, many layers. Yeah, yeah. Um, How can we use nature without using it as a resource? So how can we benefit Mm. from nature at the same time as building a kind of reciprocal relationship Mm. with nature so that we know that, yes, nature can help us, but we need to be Yeah, enjoy it without using it up. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um and and I think we've kind of touched on that, but just acknowledging that there is this huge inequality in our access to nature. And so whenever we're thinking about intervening or, or making policies, we need to make sure that we try and focus on reducing this inequality. I think that's really important because it often comes last, doesn't yeah. it? The inequality and the access mm. to nature particularly. When we're looking at policies, we want to put nature first, but we don't think of our interaction with it. I think um, we intuitively know, and there's loads of evidence that talks about the benefits on us, both 
on our physical health and our mental health of spending yeah. time in nature. So that's things like positively impacting your stress levels, um, improving sleep. It can improve imagination, memory, attention, even social interactions. So you can imagine how those sort of things will have a positive knock-on effect on mental health. And then when it comes to eco-anxiety, some, not all, but some people find it a helpful way. So getting out into wilder natural space is a helpful way to manage some of these strong feelings and get some space mm -hmm. to reflect. And then there's supporting people to get involved in some sort of nature conservation or rejuvenation, which has this kind of added benefit on well-being because you're outdoors, you're being healthy, but it's also good for the eco-anxiety itself because you, you feel like you're taking a bit of control and getting active to tackle part of the problem that's making you feel anxious in the first place. And I think this is where beavers could come in, actually, uh, or one of the many, Hooray. many places that beavers could come in. <laughs> what we're beginning to understand is that sometimes it's not just enough to be in a green space. For some people, in fact, that can feel threatening or uncomfortable. Wow. Even. Hmm. Yeah. So to gain the full emotional health benefits, it seems to be about supporting people to feel that they are in some sort of relationship with nature. So that's like tuning into the wildlife, noticing their own feelings, commenting on the beauty. So you, you sort of, you feel a connection and an attachment to the natural world in general or a specific element of it. And I think if you have an element like a beaver <laughs> in the natural environment, you can imagine how that could make it much easier for some people who maybe don't have that relationship, they don't feel that relationship that strong. You can imagine how that might make it easier for some people to mm. relate to um, a sort of a, a resourceful, committed, resilient little beaver managing its surroundings so, so well. Yeah, exactly. They're helping us feel connected to everything. Amazing. Thank you. We've covered quite a lot in um, a short space of time. Thank you so much for your expertise and sharing those thoughts with us. Mm, thank you. Thank you for having me. Gosh, how wonderful was that to speak to Katrina? I mean, I'm still slightly reeling from it um one of my favorite things about what she said is just how normal eco-anxiety is and how it's a healthy and natural response to the state of the planet and I don't think I've ever heard anyone explain it that way before because it's always been presented with a sort of a twinge of negativity attached to it so it was really refreshing to hear her describe it like that yeah, you're right. There's no shame in feeling it. And we need to talk about it more often, don't we? Mm. One of my favourite bits was that moment of um, pure honesty and openness where <laughs> she confessed she cares so much about the climate crisis. Yeah. She's stepped out of her comfort zone to come on our podcast. You lucky legend. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sophie, it's time for you to be quizzed. And it's my absolute honour to be quizzer in chief. Oh. And I've got three questions ready for you on the topic of dun, 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 water footprints. Oh, get you. Do you know what a water footprint that... is? No, I have an image in my head, but I have a feeling that's probably not what it is. So it's actually the total amount of water, in internal and external, used to produce a good, like a, a food product, for example. Um, oh. And this is really important because um, the seamless link from beavers is through via rivers to our freshwater system. And less than 1% of all the water on Earth is accessible freshwater. So it's really precious resource. Oh dear. And we often talk yeah. about carbon footprints, right, don't we? And um, the importance of those for protecting the planet. But we, also, but we also need to think about our freshwater. Okay, that is so 
far removed from the image of water footprints in my head. <laughs> <laughs> They're even looking at national water budgets these days to, to support our growing populations. So this is going to be really interesting. I've got a number of um, products for you and I want to know oh. what you think has the bigger water footprint. Let's go. So here's your question. First question. Yeah. The average water footprint globally mm. of a kilo of which is bigger? Is it a kilo of chocolate or a kilo of cheese, which has the bigger water usage, water footprint? Oh, troublers, I love both, so I don't really want to know the answer. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with cheese. Is for a laugh. the wrong answer. Chocolate Great. has uses 24,000 litres of water to produce a kilo of chocolate. That's quite oh, mind-blowing, isn't it? I highly regret my square of dairy milk. I just had that <laughs> 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Brilliant. Whereas cheese has a wow. footprint of 5,000 litres per kilo. Gosh, that's a big difference, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, quite interesting. Two popular foodstuffs. Question number two. Which of these has the bigger water footprint? One cup of coffee or tea? Uh, coffee. Correct. Yeah, it is. It Yay. is. It's 140 litres of water goes into a cup of coffee. Just a bit no, bonkers, that's isn't it? Awful. A cup. Versus oh, wow. 30 litres for a cup of tea. Gosh. You'll Ooh. be pleased to hear that, uh, possibly not very pleased to hear, that wine is worse than beer while we're on drinks. Um, oh, that is really sad. <laughs> sad news indeed. Although I quite like an ale. Um, question, <laughs> question number three, focus. Um, yeah. Which of these has the biggest water footprint? Is it chicken or beef? And again, we're talking about a kilo. Beef. It is beef. Beef takes a whopping 15,500 litres versus chickens, mm. 3,900 litres. Amazing Gosh. amount of water, isn't it? And it's a really, do you know, that's a really good way of us to sort of quantify or A, figure out where, what goes into our food, but B, sort of just get a reality check. Yeah, and I think water's concert. often overlooked, isn't it? Um, mm, we talk about carbon totally. footprints these days as a way to look at look after the planet, but we need to start thinking about water because it's it's becoming more and more scarce. It's mm, really important to consider. Indeed. Oh well, well done. Um, a, a tasty two out of three there. Good job. Thank you. I'm happy with that. <laughs> Thank you very much. I uh, I look forward to um, quizzing you. Yeah, next nice time. one. <laughs> Well, uh, before we go, we wanted to let you listeners know that we have got something exciting happening very soon. Um, Eva and I have been working on a newsletter that's going to be released quarterly. So every few months, we are going to be whizzing into your inbox with all sorts of things from the latest science on beavers and wetlands and rivers to what's going on in the policy landscape with beavers and their reintroductions in the UK and England in particularly. We've even got a book club in there so you can we take part and join in. Beaver book club yep and we've got uh, obviously the lovely Lodgecast and our latest films and all sorts of fun and games going on on there so do subscribe the sign up link is uh, on our website now and also across Twitter and things so uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Yeah. As it were. Um, and while we're on news, I'd like to offer huge congratulations to you, Sophie, particularly for your star role in the Beavers Without Borders film, which has received an award. It got the Silver Award in Latitude Film Festival. 
And it's also been shortlisted for Nature Without Borders International Film Festival. So the, the awards are trickling in for that fab film. Do have a look if you haven't yet, listeners. Um, and I'm sure that award won't be the last. But congratulations, oh. Beavers Without Borders. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about eco-anxiety um, or explore some other resources, we will put some links in our description. So take a look at those. Yeah, and don't hesitate to get in touch with us at Beaver Trust directly if you want to chat with us about anything that we've talked about this episode. Just head over to our website and drop us a line on info at Beaver Trust and we will get back to you. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Lodgecast by Beaver Trust. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform works for you. Leave us a five-star review and do tell all your friends about it. Yes, please do. And if this is your first time listening, then welcome. It's lovely to have you here. And do go back and listen to our earlier three episodes where we've been joined by writer and rather awesome documentary maker Simon Reeve, author Nick Hayes and Springwatch researcher Jack Badams. A huge thank you again to Dr. Katrina Meller for joining us in this episode. We have loved chatting with you and hope that you listeners found some solace in hearing more about eco-anxiety today. You can also enjoy more from us and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I can say with confidence that we are in the process of planning a series two of the Lodgecast, which is very exciting. So check us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Beavertrust or just visit our website beavertrust.org. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisian for Beaver Trust. 